Today's episode is brought to you by Katie Holton's The Language of Trees, a gorgeously illustrated and deeply thoughtful collection in which Holton gifts readers her tree alphabet and uses it to masterfully translate and illuminate beloved lost and new original writing in praise of the natural world. With an introduction from Ross Gay and featuring writings from over 50 contributors, including Ursula K. Le Guin, Ada Limon, Robert McFarlane, Zadie Smith, Radiohead, Amy Nezakumatatil, James Glick, Elizabeth Colbert, Plato, and Robin Wall Kimmerer. The Language of Trees is an astonishing fusion of storytelling and art and a deeply beautiful celebration of trees through the ages. The Language of Trees is out now from Tin House. Today's conversation with Gugi Watiango poses a similar challenge for an interviewer that I faced with recent guest Alain Siksu. How, with limited time, to engage with a writer so iconic, whose work has already deeply influenced the history of thought a half century ago, and who has written so much and in so many different genres since then. With Siksu, I felt like to try to touch on all aspects of the immense breadth of her work would sacrifice depth for the sake of a more superficial survey of her writing and thinking life. And I was really pleased how more narrowly focusing on her novel memoirs ended up, in the end, hinting at and nodding towards and casting light toward all that one could explore beyond them. That we both went deep in one area and at the same time suggested the presence of all the others. Because of that experience, when I learned that Googie had a book coming out that was focused on translation, the first ever book to collect his writings and talks on translation in one place, I was attracted to talking to him about what seemed like a narrow topic, that this would give us a way to go deep in one aspect of his writing life. Little did I know that really, this is the cornerstone, or a cornerstone, an essential and vital and central concern of his. And that really, when we say this book is about translation, it's really more accurately about the power dynamics between languages, the histories and legacies embedded within them, and how these reflect realities on the geopolitical level that this book is about the status of African languages in relation to the status of the continent of Africa and makes the argument that the two can't be separated, language and politics, not just in Africa, but everywhere. So to talk about translation in this broader sense of it is to talk about Googie's post-colonial theories, is to talk about capitalism and colonialism is to talk about language in relation to self-knowledge and self-determination, and much more. Similar to my conversation with Siksu, where we foregrounded her latest book, but I also chose 
two others to constellate it with. Today we talk about Googie's latest book, The Language of Languages, but I also use two others, Secure the Base, Making Africa Visible in the Globe, and Global Lectics, Theory and the Politics of Knowing, and put the three in conversation with each other to sort of anchor this new book with some previous ones of his. Both the latest book by Gugiwa Tiango and the latest book by Elen Siksu are out from the same press, Seagull Books, a press based in Calcutta that publishes world literature in English translation. And it's no exaggeration when they say that they do so with attention to exquisite design and world-class production, as the books are beautiful as objects. I want to spend a moment talking about them, as Seagull Books just celebrated their 40th anniversary, and they've kindly created one Gugiwatiango bundle, including The Language of Languages, Secure the Base, and The Upright Revolution, which is his gorgeous illustrated fable, the most translated African short story ever, one that he talks about today, one that's been translated into over 100 languages, at least half of them African. Seagull's offering a Googie bundle and one Elen Siksu bundle that includes the book we discussed, Well-Kept Ruins, but also We Defy Augury, and her early book, Tomb, a Siksu bundle, and a Googie bundle for two listeners who join the Between the Covers community as listener supporters and choose them. But whether you do, do check out Seagull Books, who have over 500 titles, including books by Aimé Césaire, Edward Said, Thomas Bernhardt, Mo Yan, Laszlo Krasnohorkai, and more. Not to mention their Africa list, which includes Googie, of course, but also writers from Alain Mamankou to Maurice Condé. Beyond the two Seagull Books bundles, there are a ton of other possible rewards from joining the Between the Covers community. Every listener supporter gets the resource-rich email with each episode, which includes the resources I discovered and used to prepare for the conversation as well as places to go afterwards if you want to explore further. And then there are a ton of other things to potentially choose from. The last episode of the show with poet Sharif Shanahan explored the intersections of Arabness and Blackness, both in North America and in North Africa. And as part of that, Mizna Magazine, the magazine of Arab American culture and art, offered copies of their Black Southwest Asian North African takeover issue, helmed by an all-black production team and edited by the poet Safia El-Hilo. And there's the ever-growing bonus audio archive with readings and craft talks from everyone from Dion Brand to Marlon James and conversations with translators from Emma Ramadan to Megan McDowell. And this only scratches the surface. And you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation about the language of languages with Gugi Wa Tiango. 
stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is novelist, storyteller, essayist, playwright, scholar, and translator Gugiwa Tiango. Born in the 1930s when Kenya was a British settler colony, his adolescence coincided with the decade-long War of Independence, a major theme of his early works. He entered Makerere University College in Kampala, Uganda, as a colonial subject, but by the time he graduated with a BA in English in 1963, Kenya had emerged as a free and independent state. During school, he wrote plays, stories, drafts of novels, a regular column for the Sunday Nation called As I See It, and he attended the first African Writers' Conference, a milestone event for African literature, where he approached Chinua Achebe, asking him to read his novel manuscripts for his first two books, Weep Not Child and The River Between, which Achebe helped get published as part of the Heinemann's African Writers series. 1967 was the year his third book, A Grain of Wheat, was published, a book he had written while studying at Leeds University, and a book that marks both a formal and an ideological shift in his writing. Inspired by Franz Fanon's Marxist and anti-colonial critique, the collective, not the individual, became the center of both history and narrative in Googie's book, which changed the way his stories related to both time and to point of view. 1967 was also his first year teaching at the University of Nairobi, where he taught for a decade, and where he was at the center of the effort to reimagine and renamed the English department as the Department of Literature. He's one of the co-authors of the polemic declaration on the abolition of the English department, which set in motion an African and global debate, as well as practices that later became the heart of post-colonial theories. His first essay collection, Homecoming, contains this piece, the first of many essay collections, which also include Decolonizing the Mind, Moving the Center, and Penpoints, Gunpoints, and Dreams. 1977 was perhaps the most pivotal year in his life. Petals of Blood was published that year, and his controversial play, I Will Marry When I Want, was performed in an open-air theater with actors recruited from the workers of the village. The play was both critical of the inequalities and injustices in post-colonial Kenya, 
and championed the cause of ordinary Kenyans, and most notably was performed not in English, but Gikuyu, prompting copies of the play to be confiscated and Gugi to be imprisoned without charge for nearly a year in a maximum security prison. A year he wrote about in his memoir, Detained, a Writer's Prison Diary. It was here in the prison where he decided to no longer write in English as his primary language and committed himself to writing in Gikuyu, his mother tongue, and wrote his fifth novel in prison, On Squares of Toilet Paper, a novel known in its English translation as Devil on the Cross. Named a prisoner of conscience by amnesty, an international campaign eventually secured his release, but the Kenyan dictatorship barred him from jobs and ultimately threatened his life, and this led him into a life of exile, first in the UK and then in the United States. Nevertheless, he continued to be hounded by the Daniel Arap Moy dictatorship from afar, including a thwarted assassination attempt in Zimbabwe in 1986. Even after the end of 22 years of exile with the end of the dictatorship, Gugi and his wife in a visit to Kenya in 2004 were attacked by armed gunmen and narrowly escaped with their lives. In exile, among the many positions he's held, he was visiting professor of English and comparative literature at Yale for three years, professor of comparative literature and performance studies at New York University for 10, and for the last several decades has been distinguished professor of English and comparative literature at the University of California, Irvine, where he was the first director of the International Center for Writing and Translation. This only scratches the surface of his writing and teaching life, of his novels, memoirs, plays, short stories, essays, and children's books. For a writer who understandably is regularly on the short list of global writers considered as a frontrunner for the Nobel Prize in literature each year. But the reason we are here today with Gugi Watiango is to talk about something that might seem at first marginal to Gugi's concerns translation. But as you will soon discover, translation isn't a niche interest of his, but is actually central and essential to his political and ideological concerns in both his fiction and nonfiction, adult and children's literature, central to his thoughts on identity and self-knowledge and self-determination, to his thoughts on capitalism and the afterlives of colonialism to international relations and imaginings of a more just future. Something that could be seen as a through line and backbone for his writing and scholarly life entire. We'll be talking today about his new book, just out with Seagull Books, The Language of Languages, a collection of his essays and lectures written and delivered over the past 20 years, and the first book dedicated entirely to his thoughts on translation and its implications. Welcome to Between the Covers, Gugi Watiango. Yeah, thank you. As you say, it's a collection of my talks, really, you know. Yeah. Most of the people who know you already, who know of your work, they know of the moment in your life, the year in prison, when you decide to stop writing your novels in English, to write them from then on in your first language, despite the thousands of pressures 
and incentives to do otherwise. Surely some of this must have come from witnessing the way your play, written and performed in an African language, rattled the powerful with its critique, when your novels in English that had come just before, equally critical of the government, caused no such response from the Kenyan dictatorship. But, but there's another story, more than a decade earlier in your life, in 1966, when you're invited by Arthur Miller, the, oh. he, the, the head of PEN America at the time, to be a representative of Africa at the PEN International Conference in the United States. Yeah. And you have an experience there that perhaps is an earlier origin story that led you to return to your mother tongue 11 years later. And it's a story you recount early in this new book on translation as part of a speech you give in Chile because the pivotal incident in 1966 was when you were attending a panel that included not only Arthur Miller, but Pablo Neruda. Pablo Neruda, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, right. Oh my God. <laughs> can you share with us the story of what happened, you in the audience, listening to Neruda and Miller and others speak, and how this might have planted a seed that later reverberated? Actually, it was the International Pen Conference, and it was, I think, Adam Miller was the president of Penn. International Penn and Penn America had organized that conference. And the conference had participants from both Western and also Eastern countries, that is the uh, communist uh, countries at the time. Mm. And they were being allowed to America really for the first time. An example, Pablo Neruda, who had been a member of the Chile Communist Party, and he had, been, he had not been allowed to America for, for many, many years. So he was really in America uh, for the first time in 30 years. Wow. And, but later I would learn, later, not at the time, but there were many other participants from uh, Latin America, the group of writers who later came to form the Latin American Renaissance or grouped around that Renaissance, yeah. I was new into that kind of arena. Uh, I'd published my novel, uh, two novels, Weep No Child and The River Between. And I was a postgraduate student at Leeds when I was invited to that conference. So I was a novice in the international writing stage. Huh? In everything, really. I was in America for the first time, you know. Uh, there are several regional guests of honor. I was a regional guest of honor from Africa. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, uh, but I was overwhelmed by the occasion. You can imagine, yeah. you know, I I like to absorb everything, the atmosphere, the dignitaries, and so on. So I had never spoke at the conference, and I was not a scheduled speaker anyway. I was a participant yeah, until I did one of the last sessions, and it was during a panel by Apollo Neruda and Ignatius Sloan, or Sloan, uh, the Italian author of Bread and Wine, and other Miller was chairing the panel. You know, uh, now 
the moment I remember, I'm just sitting there literally. So enjoying everything for me because everything for me was new, was exhilarating and whatever, you know. So and I'm sitting there. <laughs> when I hear out of the blue, I hear, uh, I remember this very well. I Sloan was complaining, I think, about the, the fact there were not many translations of Italian writers into English or whatever. And then he said these words. He said, and you know, Italian is not like one of these, but two languages with one or two words in their vocabulary. Mm. It's like I woke from a dream or something, you know, I walk from paradise or whatever, <laughs> all right? And uh, I felt I had to stand up for African languages, right? So I stood up, I was fuming, so I could articulate very well, but these words burst out of my mouth. I like to assure the audience uh, that African languages had definitely more than one or two words in the vocabulary. Yeah. And I sat down. Other Miller picked up my lines more or less. And he he was a chairman. He well, he was quite diplomatic. He said, people can praise, should be able to be free to praise their languages, but really they should not put down other languages in the process. Just just talk about the virtues of your own language, but you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. It's quite diplomatic. Yeah. The only thing I remember I, that uh, was later at the reception, Habla Neruda walked all the way up enter, and somehow he, he spotted me or something. He walked through the crowd to where I was and shook my hand at the reception later. So we didn't speak very many words. But later learning more about him, I came to realize that that may have been a gesture of solidarity with what I had said. I think we even exchanged addresses, although I never followed up with writing or anything of the sort. So there was no more communication between us. Uh, but I really valued that gesture of solidarity uh, from Pablo Neruda. And then I go... <laughs> I don't I want to make a long story. I'll try to make this long story short. But anyway, I traveled through the States in cloud nine, of course, because I'm in America for the first time and you know all the you know everything. I met other people later in Iowa, like Gayatri Spivak, and then eventually returned to England, Leeds University, where I was. And of course, I was in the middle of writing my novel, A Grain of Wheat. Oh my. In what language was I writing it? In English, of course. Yes. I just come from New York, where I talk virtues of African languages, right? So that irony really struck me more than actually what happened at the conference in my own practice uh, of writing in English, I had said to all the world that African languages 
has as good vocabularies as any other language in the world, right? Which I believe is true. But in what language was I then, me, a Kenyan African, writing my that novel in English? To be quite frank, although I thought about languages before, but not in that kind of personal challenge. I feel personally challenged and so on, yeah. But you're quite right. What eventually turned me around was actually eventually in Kenya, many years later, working at a place we call Kameredo Community Education and Cultural Center in Kenya that I and my friend Goa Merie, the late Goa Merie, jointly wrote a play called Armaro Enaon, Patini Koyo, Gahikadeda. Kind of ironic, such as, yeah. The key thing about this play, as you said, was it was performed by literally by literally ordinary working people of the village, small farmers, you know, people in factories, in the plantations, you know. I mean, in fact, we didn't use, we didn't have formal costumes. We just used the clothes they normally wore, right? <laughs> That's the clothes we used. So, you know, so, uh, and the impact of the play was really huge in terms of attendance and enthusiasm and so on. We burst from different parts of the country to come and see the play. And then November, I think November 11, 1977, it was stopped by the Kenyan government. And in December, the same, three months later, I was arrested by armed policemen, three truckloads of armed policemen wow. came to my house at night, midnight of December 19, December that 1st, 1977. So January 1, 1978, I was in a maximum security prison, a man without a name. I was no longer a professor at the University of Nairobi, no longer the writer who was known as the author of those three novels and so on. You know, uh, I was just a number in a maximum security prison. The key thing about this prison experience is, is when I really started thinking seriously about the implications of what we're doing as African writers writing in English. And the whole question of language in a colonial uh, order, okay? And I just want to mention quite quickly, other ironies, the person who put me to prison was Jomo Kenyatta, the first president of independent Kenya. And Jomo Kenyatta, of course, was a symbol of our nationalism, right? Uh, known all over the world as the burning spear. The, the one who in 1922 started the first Gikoyo language journal or magazine called Moiguidania, right? Mm. So he was not a man necessarily averse to Gikoyo language because he himself started a journal in that language and he was a very good speaker of the language, everything. He wrote another book in English called uh, Facing Mount Kenya, which again, although in English, but still contain a lot of knowledge of Ikoyo uh, culture and so on. So the 
The president at the time was like a Koyo language speaker, right? I was writing like a Koyo. He imprisoned me, <laughs> right? What, what, what's going on? What is this thing, okay? We can talk more about it, but my thinking about the time, but that's the time. That's this moment I decided to embark on equal language. And I said, no, no English for me. Writing, no, it wasn't in English to be equal, to have equal language. And I wrote my first novel, as you say, in, on toilet paper, you know, in a coil, in committing maximum security prison. And it is a novel that also made me survive. By the way, I've written uh, the memoir, Detained, has now been reissued under the title Wrestling with the Devil. Yes. Yeah. Well, I would... I would like to explore the ironies of this situation more. But before we do, I just wanted to mention one thing that I think is really interesting that you mentioned in the new book, The Language of Languages. The irony of the prejudice of this Italian writer, this Italian writer who, who claims Italian is superior to the Bantu languages that have no vocabulary. Because this accusation actually that African languages don't have enough vocabulary or aren't sophisticated enough uh, in grammar to have complex thought, that they're not well-suited for scientific or philosophical inquiry or literature, is actually the same accusation that was leveled against French and English when Latin was supreme. And you talk about how René Descartes actually defends the vernacular French defending its capacity to be a vehicle for science and philosophy against this very accusation. Um, and obviously the idea that French and English are deficient in this capacity now would seem laughable. Uh, yeah. And it, it sounds like you're asserting this very same thing for African languages. They were asking, how can English, you know, tackle... <laughs> medical terms or scientific terms, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, it's incredible that was actually there. I, I don't think there's a connection, but you know, the, the first Englishman to translate the Bible from Latin to English was later killed, murdered, okay, executed. But, <laughs> but I think it was for something else. But the irony, the, the first to translate the Bible from secret tongue, Latin, into this other language with no vocabulary called English that he was a little murdered. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, th thinking about your decision 45 years ago to write in Gakuyo from then onwards, I wanted to jump forward to the status of African languages today in the present moment. I was watching a relatively recent talk you gave at Oxford where you talked about a conference at Leeds University that was attended by more than 500 top-notch scholars on Africa, and you posed a question to them. How many people here have written at least one paper in an African language? And none of these African scholars raised their hand. 
And, and then you posed both, a similar... Both, both Afghan scholars and other scholars on Africa. Scholars on Africa, yes. As well, both African and also non-African. Yes. But we're all African scholars. Uh, Yes. Uh, but you posed a similar question in Ghana at a conference on African studies yeah. and received a relatively similar response. Yeah. And, you, and you said in this Oxford talk about scholars on Africa, could you imagine hiring someone as a scholar on French literature who spoke not a word of French? And you've also talked about how there are prominent prizes, many prominent prizes for African literature where the precondition for consideration is that the books were written in English. Or not in African language. Or not in an African language, it's some other colonial language. And then in the year 2000, you give a speech, you give a speech in Eritrea that you deliver in your own mother tongue, which is included in this book, where you say European languages determine who is an African writer and who writes for Africa. And if you write in an African language, you're actually less likely to be invited to conferences on African literature. And you note that this 2000 conference was the first conference on African soil to bring African scholars together to discuss the future of scholarship and literature in African languages. For well, the beginning of the millennium, uh, yeah. yeah. Against all odds. That conference came up with a very important statement, you know, uh, the Asmara Declaration. And that, too, one of the best statements on African languages uh, and can still be found in the internet, yeah. You've said elsewhere also that our bodies are our first field of knowledge and that to begin with the idea that our own hair or our own skin are wrong is a sort of bondage. And I think you've said something similar about language, that to be divorced from one's mother tongue is a sort of slavery. Yeah. And last, lastly, as part of this question, you've talked about how language is a carrier of memory, that without memory, we cannot negotiate our relationship to one another, to nature, even to our own bodies and selves and that one of the effects of the colonizer imposing their language is its effect on memory, that wherever Europe went, it planted its memory, and that this incorporation into European memory has had and continues to have dire consequences for Africa. So I was hoping you could speak more about the body as a source of knowledge, about language as memory, but also what your feeling is about how much or little has changed in Africa around the status of African languages in the 45 years since you started writing in them. One of the geniuses in the courts of colonialism was to realize that language was the key to actual colonization. In other words, you know, you colonize people's languages. They know you colonize their minds. Uh, and this was the source of my book, Decolonizing the Mind. Decolonizing the Mind is interesting because there were actually, there were lectures I gave in New Zealand, uh, invited there, ironically, by the English department in uh, New Zealand, Auckland University. Uh, lectures were there in memory of their first vice chancellor, they called Rob 
lectures, R-O-B-B lectures. But the key thing about those lectures was that these were really the thoughts I had in prison. I met the maximum security prisons. As I was writing my novel, uh, Devil on the Cross, or Shaitan Mudrafaine in Ikekuyo, uh, these were also the thoughts around the writing of that novel or the thoughts that led me to write the novel, okay, about language, language and colonialism and so on. And this was what I came to, and this, this is what I came to, putting it all together quite, you know, is this. Whatever a people have colonized or controlled another, even though the real aim is to control their land, their labor, and other resources. But the most effective way they have found is through language yeah, and naming systems. Yeah. And I looked at even a country like Japan when they colonized Korea 1910 1945, they actually imposed Japanese on Koreans, right? Mm -hmm. And Japanese names on the Koreans, right? Yeah. The French did exact same thing. Wherever they went, French was. The Portuguese, the same thing. The Spanish, the same thing. The English, the same thing. But I connected to something else in my thinking. There's a film by Sabena Usman called Shadow, or C-E-D-D-O, in which shows the Africans being chained through the, what they call the last gate or something, before they are shipped to new plantations. And because captured slaves, or captured Africans, and enslaved Africans, since they are put in the same ship, and they are presumably they belong to different slave slavers. They were marked. They were branded. Like in Africa, we used to brand cows. We used to herd cows and it goes in common. But to recognize what cows belong to whom, they branded each cow with the brand of the owner. And the same thing, actually hot iron branding. So that branding, the naming system, as well branding the body of the African person or the colonized person. In the case of African-American or American, or what we now call African-Americans, they were first branded with the name of the owner, with the mark of the owner. But on the plantation, they lost their names completely and came to be known by the name of the plantation owner, right? So that you said you're brown, everybody knew. If you are Mr. Brown or whatever you are, they knew, ah, that must be the one who, who belongs to Brown, okay? Then, then they banned all African languages. And whereas the Spanish people were still linguistically connected to Spain, the English the same, the French the same, for African people enslaved, they were linguistically disconnected with the continent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
In Africa, the same branding was in the form of Christianity. When an African became a Christian, he was given a name. And the name was English. I presume for the French, it was French. It was Portuguese, right? Mm -hmm. My argument is that a name is the first more immediate term of identity. When somebody calls me Gogi, oh, I turn around, okay? I mean, automatically. I turn my head, or at least, right? That's me, kind of. Gogi, me. You the same thing, I'm sure. When they mention your name, you, yeah, you, you kind of pay attention, yes. right? So I put all those together. With language, is the same thing. Your mother tongue is your window into the world. This is how I summarize things. First of all, I reject all hierarchical systems, including that of language, okay? The whole notion that some languages are inherently higher than other languages. I say no, right? That all languages have something to give to the world. That what's wrong with languages in terms of their relationship is when they are put together in terms of hierarchy. But when languages are put in the form of a network of contact, a network of equal give and take, they give, they generate energy, they generate oxygen, they generate something else, okay? The other one, hierarchy suffocates. The other one allows language to breathe. And when they breathe, they can give each other, and by the way, that's where translation comes in. I can breathe in my language, and the result of it can be made available to Mandarin, in Russian, in English, in Spanish, in Quechua, right? right? Yeah. yeah, or Hindi. Yeah. This notion that an African literary prize would require books to be written in European languages, or that, as you've mentioned, the irony of you yourself being jailed, not only for writing something critical of the government, but for writing it in an African language, and by a government and police force that had fought against British colonialism to gain independence, that these same people when a publisher agrees to publish your first novel in an African language, attack the publisher and cut off one of his fingers. And there's a certain irony and, and contradiction in this, obviously, that, that when you were growing up under colonial rule, you could be hit and humiliated and forced to wear a sign that said stupid on it if you spoke in your own language in school. And yet many post-colonial African governments we're sort of continuing these gestures in spirit. Um, and I want to connect this to something you said to the Zambian writer Namwali Serpel when she interviewed you for the Paris Review. She was asking you about the titles of your books. And you said that you tend to give all your novels the same title to begin with, Wrestling with God, because from a young age, you were very preoccupied by the image of Jacob wrestling the angel and that this scene held great power in your mind. 
and that you've always been drawn to the idea of the human struggle with a greater power and to the idea of oppositions leading to progression. And it was when you studied Marx and Engels at Leeds that this dialectic idea was instilled in you. And similarly, that it wasn't until you encountered Marx and then Franz Fanon that you began to understand why, even after independence, the pattern of exploitation hadn't changed. And first, I just want to say that I love that you make this connection between Jacob and the angel and Marx and Fanon's dialectic. But I was hoping you could speak um, to this phenomenon for us of the post-colonial situation and the ways what is happening in Africa today makes more sense from the framing of Fanon, why we're seeing an extension of a lot of the um, punishment that was during the colonial era now in the post-colonial era. And first of all, on language, let me just say one more thing. Just let me summarize what I say about languages in one sentence, which I like very much. I like what sounds out everything for me. If you know all the languages of the world and you don't know your mother tongue or the language of your culture, that is enslavement. But if you know your mother tongue or the language of your culture and add all the other languages or the word to it, that is empowerment, right? So for me, many languages is empowerment, but rooted in the original mother tongue, yeah. When we're talking about a rupture from one's mother tongue being a form of enslavement. I wonder about all the cultures, including the the cultures of the African diaspora, where the return to the mother tongue is irretrievable. Or let's say Jews in Europe who who invent Yiddish and African Americans who invent their own African American vernacular English, or many Native American tribes where the rupture is too great to revive the language, it still feels like there's some sort of empowerment that they're creating. Uh-huh. That it, I wonder if it's only, is it only bondage if you don't have it? Is Because it feels like sometimes these responses to not having one's mother tongue are actually um, empowering responses. What I find interesting in this is, okay, the Jewish people produced Yiddish. And I think, I believe in Russia, some of the Yiddish writers became prominent Yiddish writers, I believe, okay? In America, when African languages were banned in a plantation, and African people then, it's not that they went to formal training for English and so on, but then, to me, what happens then, very interesting, they create new languages. For instance, American, African-American English, you can see a marriage of the African rhythms of speech with the English sounds. And they create new languages, which become really essential. And in the case of African-American, it's actually incredible because that new language system 
produced the spirituals now all over the world. They produced blues, jazz, hip hop, cultural systems which have, have become global, literally global, right? And I said to myself, what other languages over the same period have produced cultures which have become global, not by force of arms, <laughs> but they have power, yeah. okay? So I call them, they produce different language systems. And, and I recognize those. It happened in the Caribbean, it happened you know, in uh, uh, America, and I'm very proud of what they were able to do. But you see, there is a tendency now to call that form of language broken English. <laughs> and when you got broken in it, it says, oh, if I'm educated, let me not have anything to do with it, kind of thing, okay? Or bad English, or bad grammar. But it's a different system. It's a different language system they develop, okay? They not allow their languages, they develop new systems. So, Yiddish uh, uh, is a new system, you know, and uh, I don't know whether Yiddish is used as much these days. I think it's unfortunate, yeah. Yeah. It's a different language system, yeah. Each language has its own sound, uh, music, I mean, let me use our musicality. Languages are like musical instruments because each musical instrument has its unique musicality, the sound, but not the sound, but the musicality of that sound is unique to it. By this I mean, if you hear someone playing the piano, even if you don't see what he's playing, you know that's a piano, right? Playing guitar, you know that's guitar. Even if they are playing the same melody, so that's do with the melody. It's to do with the that musicality, that's unique musicality. And they may be singing the same song or the same melody, okay, same lyrics, but you can tell that's piano. Now, ordinarily, we never say the piano is higher than the guitar. We don't put instrument in a hierarchy, musical instrument in a hierarchy, but we bring them together. They create music, they create orchestra, right? When placed in a different way in relationship, they can hold the cacophony, <laughs> same instrument, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I am for many languages, really. A new language will develop, will continue developing, you know. Uh, so whichever is one's mother tongue, that should be the beginning. Then from that language, you connect with other languages. What I don't like is when the collective, collectively, you're being made to be actively hostile to your own language. Yes. Like the way animals are broken, you know, horses or others, you know, right? Yeah. As you say, today in Africa, African school system continue the same process. 
an African person is punishing an African child for speaking African language in a school compound. Mm -hmm. Today, in independent Africa, children beaten by African teachers because those children are speaking an African language in the school compound. Hey, there's something you can, you know, there's something abnormal about that. <laughs> well, let me quote to you something that you said yourself in your book, Secure the Base, Making Africa Visible in the Globe. It's sort of a preface for my next question. In that book, you talk about how part of the African middle class collaborated with European traders of slaves and then later collaborated with the colonial state and then later became the national armies and police forces of the post-colonial countries. And in that same essay, you say, quote, the education of black elite is entirely in European languages. Their conceptualization of the world is within the parameters of the language of their inheritance. Most importantly, it makes the elite an integral part of a global speech community. Within the African nations, European tongues continue to be what they were during the colonial period, the languages of power, conception, and articulation of the worlds of science, technology, politics, law, commerce, administration, and even culture. Most African nations are thereby divided into two, a tiny group within the privileged linguistic loop, but which cuts across various ethnic boundaries, and the majority speaking different ethnic languages, but united by their location outside the linguistic loop in every possible way. Fanon touches on this problem in Black Skin, White Masks when he claims that to acquire a colonial language is to acquire the weight of the civilization it carries, including the concepts of how reality is organized. The tiny group that speaks it is drawn from the top 5% in each of the ethnic nationalities, but it may come to see itself as somehow constituting the nation. By cutting across the various ethnicities, the language of power may seem to be the more national the middle-class incorporation into European memory before and after independence is a major weakness of the class, a point Fanon emphasizes when he accuses the national bourgeoisie of identifying with the Western bourgeoisie from whom it has learnt by heart its lessons. So thinking of this, I wanted to ask you about this in relation to another argument that is made for European languages that you confront also in Secure the Base, which is around how, how do we reconcile a desire for African unity and for a resurgent pan-Africanism for securing the base with Africa's innumerable number of languages, where some people argue that this quality you describe of the black elite and the linguistic loop that all speak the same language and cut across ethnic divisions. Some argue within Africa that this facilitates nation building and cross-country connection. And you definitely argue strongly against this. Um, 
for more languages, not less languages. So talk to us about this so-called language problem and how and, and why in your mind it should be seen as a strength rather than an obstacle that, yeah, that Kenya has over 60 languages. Um, and even though English is one of the two official languages. English spoken by in Kenya, English is spoken by only 10%. It only happens that that 10% cuts across many other national communities. But there's nothing inherent in English that makes it inherently more able to cross, go across the various national groupings. In other words, the same thing can, the same role can be played by Kiswahili, for instance, or by Igbo or Yoruba or any other language. In other words, English is not inherently national, or French is not inherently able to go across, right? If I know Kiswahili, and you know Kiswahili, you can communicate. There's nothing that says that that role can only be played by English. So that's the first thing, you know. But even anyway, what I said earlier is important is respect. I said, if you know your mother tongue, whatever it is, even if it's spoken by five people, then you add to it English or French or, or many languages. Well, that's a good thing. There's nothing <laughs> inherently evil or bad about English or French. Is there a power relationship with the other languages? That's a problem, not their quality as languages. As languages, I enjoy reading French literature, for instance, in translation. I enjoy reading Russian literature in translation, and so on. Spanish literature. Garcia Marquez, who wrote in Spanish, I believe, is one of my favorite authors. Huh? If I had him so much that I must keep on saying that I'll have to learn Spanish too. I'm very curious to know how he sounds in, <laughs> in, Spanish. in Spanish or in the original language. Um, yeah. Lately, I met uh, a Quechua writer came to see me. Huh? Eliana Maria Maldonado, and last name Cano, like C-A-N-O. Who's huh? raised in Quechua and in Spanish. She's writing three languages. And uh, I was very, very impressed. Yeah. And I was very excited because they went through the same process of marginalization by uh, Spanish. And what she's doing right now, she's writing Quechua, she's not writing Spanish, and some she does translation between. And now sometimes she gets the translated into English. And seems to me that's the way to go. Uh, let all languages be, but they can meet through translation. And that's why I describe translation as the language of languages. I see it as a common language of languages, right? Do you 
Do you think that South Africa's language policy is a good step in the sense that during the colonial era, they had three official languages and they were all of European origin. And now they have an 11 language policy. And I think only two of the 11 languages are of European origin. Do you think that's a good governmental step? Every person have a right to their mother tongue or the language of their culture. It's empowerment to add other languages to it. But the colonial process does the other way around. It completely negates <laughs> all the other languages. It's only the colonial language is the real language. So the French claim French is the only language. The Spanish the same, uh, the Portuguese the same thing, right? Yeah. And this is what I'm saying. That hierarchical way is what is essentially wrong. It is what I'm opposing. Yeah. And it does not matter whether that language is Quechua in Latin America or uh, a language in some different languages, even within Europe, are equally marginalized. Yeah. Like in Scandinavia, uh, uh, among uh, all the, uh, I forget. The Sami people, maybe? Sami people, yeah. Uh, yeah. So thinking of English in Africa, Achebe talked about how he learned English and to write in English as a means of infiltrating the ranks of the enemy and destroying him from within. And he also said in his mind, it doesn't matter what language you write in as long as what you write is good. And that language is a weapon and we use it, that there's no point in fighting a language. And when asked if Things Fall Apart had ever been translated into Igbo, his mother tongue, he explained that Igbo had numerous dialects different from place to place, and that standardized written Igbo only came into being as a result of missionaries and their desire to translate the Bible into African languages. So the missionaries brought together six Christian Igbo converts who each spoke a different dialect. And the resulting language, Union Igbo, didn't resemble any of the dialects. And Achebe called it, quote, a strange hodgepodge with no linguistic elegance, natural rhythm, or oral authenticity. So he didn't consent to have his book translated into what he considered a linguistic travesty. So there's... This interesting phenomenon, as the critic Susan Gallagher notes, quote, one of the world's great novels translated into more than 30 languages is unable to appear in the language of the very culture that it celebrates and mourns. But you don't take the same position as Achebe. You, you assert unequivocally, as you have in this conversation, that English is not an African language. Yeah, it is not. And that the idea that one is expanding African languages by writing in English is the same as saying Joseph Conrad expands Polish by writing in English. But in, in light of this, I wanted to talk about, for you, the pleasures and challenges of both writing and publishing in Gukoyo. Besides the violence and the threats of violence you've experienced for writing in an African language, there are many other challenges to writing in Kikoyo. You you talked with Namwali Serpel, for instance, about how there's almost no written tradition 
in the language and that particularly at the beginning there was always a devil on your shoulder that would tempt you to give up and return to English when you were having trouble finding a word. Yeah. But I'd be, I'd be interested to hear about any practical publishing world realities uh, around writing and publishing in Koyo. I call him the little devil. That's why my memoir of prison, I've reached the Maratha title, Wrestling the Devil. <laughs> what I mean by that is this that one become conditioned writing in English. And, and first of all, I, I keep repeating, there's nothing wrong with the English or French or any language. I mean, you know, so, but you're used to it, you get used to it. So when you try to connect your own language, it's like this devil is always whispering in your ear, ah, but I'm here. Why are you having all these difficulties? So. It can be very frustrating and you can say, oh, come on, let me just continue with the English and on. And what we don't realize sometimes is that it took us many years to get to know the English the way we do, right? So it does come into our system effortlessly. Too many years of training, conditioning, school, this and that and that, you know. Um, so, and all, that's one of the problems. I call it now, we live in a world of normalized abnormality. Normalized abnormality of the colonial system. Uh, it was abnormal in any way. Punish Native Americans, Native Canadians, Native Australians, Native Kenyans, Africans, for speaking their mother tongue. English, French were built on the graveyard of African languages, right? And that's wrong. And so that abnormality became now normalized at independence. So let me show you an example of was abnormality. In Kenya, right now, there are schools run by very wealthy Kenyan Africans. Very expensive schools that are devoted to teaching British national curriculum. Mm. And you ask, why should an African in Kenya, 50 years of independence, be so obsessed with running a school that runs British national curriculum. It's not normal, right? But the abnormality has now become normalized as a desirable norm, okay? All languages have great potentiality. They have all their unique musicalities and languages connecting on the basis of a network of equal give and take who produce orchestras, wonderful orchestras. Just as I like reading Tolstoy. <laughs> we are always arguing with my friends about Tolstoy and Anna Karenina or Dostoevsky, eh? <laughs> right? We argue mm -hmm. and we never read any of them in Russian. We are always arguing about Marx. 
I mean, you just put marks, yes, and I've read marks, yes. And right, but I I've never read even in German, right? But the Communist Manifesto is known all over the world. So also the Bible. The Bible is so normal every Sunday in every Kenyan church. Every Sunday, they read the Bible in Ikekoyo. It's so normal, right? But it's a translation, over-translation, probably over-translation. Anyway, language has a lot to give to each other. But they put in a hierarchy, they stifle. In the case of English, because I like the little devil, who whispers, I'm here. Why are you bothering with this ikoyo? I'm here. Huh? I have a word ready. Yeah? Just use me. Right? An example of this, you see, one of my books, Ikoyo came out. Ikoyo intellectuals so used to reading books in English. That when they read it, they would read a few sentences. And they, ah, oh, Ikoyo is so difficult. I mean, they completely forget they spent years and years in schools being trained to write, speak English. They are surrounded by English newspapers, radio stations, everything. So it looks normal, right? Easy. When you see the word good, G-O-O-D, you don't even think twice about it. You just see the beginning and you just read it. You don't even stumble. But not this. This one not the way it was at the beginning. Okay, uh, you mentioned the conference in Leeds when I asked these scholars of African realities, history, philosophy. They were all gathered. Some from Africa, some were non-Africans, and I took them to how many of you have written or even read. Uh, a book in an African language, none. I went down to a page, none. I went down to a paragraph. I think one or two did raise their hands, right? And this was a conference of solid African scholars, both from the continent and outside. And the absurdity that they were scholars of Africa, my natural languages. To me, it's so absurd now. Uh, <laughs> although at the time when Achebe was saying it, it looked not so absurd at the time. They looked as if it was solid arguments. But now I can see my friend Achebe was being a little bit absurd. <laughs> <laughs> and towards the end of his life, I think he was beginning to change a little bit. It, it was African languages, actually, actually. To be fair to Achebe, yeah. And by the way, Achebe's novel, Things Fall Apart, has been translated into Ekegusi, E K E G U S I I, Ekegusi language in Kenya. There's a publisher there, Mosbori uh, Obuchi. She has been published in Ekegusi. In fact, published translations, right? Things for a by Chebe 
uh, Romeo and Juliet from Shakespeare into a Kagusi, right? She did my book, The River Between, from English into a Kagusi. And she so challenged me in that respect that I've now tra <laughs> I've, I've, I've translated that now into a coil. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, because that's great. It's funny. I mean, it's just, you know, was Bosbori Obuchi challenged me. You can again Google her name. Sometimes she goes as the name Jane Obuchi, but um, <laughs> it's very ironic that Achebe has now been translated into an African language in Kenya called Ekegusi, right? He's very popular. He's a very popular writer, even within the English language. Yeah. Well, you, you've talked elsewhere about how shorter works in Gokoyo have few places to publish them. And in your speech in Chile, you mentioned the first Gokoyo language journal that you yourself ran and how Ariel Dorfman's poem in it was the first ever translation of a Chilean poet into an African language. But you've also talked about how you have many Gokoyo book-length manuscripts that haven't found publication, that publishers really only want to accept them with an eye toward the eventual English translation, and that, ironically, translations into English have worked against your efforts in Gokoyo. So you've been trying to delay, considerably delay, the time after the Gokoyo publication before an English translation happens so that it can live in the world in Gokoyo for years before it comes out in English. And I wondered if you had any, if you could talk more about that or any other, any strategy. One, one book which I had to, had to delay, it's called the, called the Perfect Nine. I had it out in Gekoyo first, and the instant was delayed for two years, deliberately, for, I mean, through my insistence, to give the Gekoyo language a chance to circulate among the Gekoyo intellectuals. Because I said, the devil, the English devil is always around the corner. Say, but I'm around here. I'm, it's easier to read me, not the other one, okay? So the only way is denying the devil a chance to, <laughs> to say I'm here. The way I like to see my order, I would like to see my books coming first, then Kiswahili. It's a kind of lingua franca in Kenya and East Africa and Congo, okay? And then English and any other language thereafter. That's the order I would like to see. But of course, there are no publishers who are there to do that. So it's a challenge. And it's publishing is a real challenge now to African writers in African languages because there are very few publishers in African languages. So an African language writer has, apart from, I don't have many challenges. Yeah, it's an act of will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know this myself because Believe me or not, I have more than three or four manuscripts in a Koyo language, right? And right now, I can't get them out. Uh, uh, eventually, I know they will come out, but quite frustrating. It would be very frustrating for a young writer who is beginning to write when he writes in a Koyo or any African language 
he or she is not accessible to anybody, but then a competitor or a, a colleague who writes in English will get published and be known all over the world. More well, not quite, but he'll be known anyway. But this other one has manuscripts there in a yeah. language. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a great essay by the American poet and translator John Keane called Translating Poetry, Translating Blackness, where he looks at how little is being translated into English from Black writers in Africa and the African diaspora. He looks at what is lost around what we might know or reconsider regarding race and Blackness by not experiencing very different constructions of race and Blackness around the world. Uh. And also suggests the need for more black translators. Yeah. Something I know that like the press in England, Tilted Axis is trying to be part of the solution around. But Keane's piece also looks at how dire the translation situation is in every way in the United States, that less than 1% of all literary texts in the U.S. are translated texts. And the vast majority of those, of course, are coming from languages of other former colonial powers, from Spanish, from French, from Portuguese. Yeah. But even those languages are woefully untranslated into English. And, and similarly, when I talked to Elliot Weinberger, he was the translator of Octavio Paz, among others. He said that up until the 1950s, almost every major U.S. poet also translated. They considered it their responsibility to the vitality of the community, of the writing community, to bring these other writers into English, to keep the poetry scene alive and porous and dynamic, which reminds me of a quote of Aimé Césaire that you often quote. Um, he said, it is a good thing to place different civilizations into contact with each other, that it is an excellent thing to blend different worlds, that whatever its own particular genius may be, a civilization that withdraws into itself atrophies, that for civilization, exchange is oxygen. And you yourself have called for more translations between so-called minor languages without them passing through major languages. And in that light, I was hoping you could talk about the Gelada Pan-African Writers Collective and what happened with your book, The Upright Revolution. Let me tell you the story of that one because it's very, very telling. What happened some years ago, I don't remember the year anyway, 2005 probably, there's a group of Africans called the Jalada Collective, African Collective, and they wrote a journal called Jalada. And one of the people, Kilolo, started a translation project. This is a collective, so they do different things. The translation project was started by, he was then called Moses Kilolo, uh, although now he calls himself Munyao Kilolo. Uh, Moses Kilolo of Kenya. And they wanted to start a journal, African to African translations, in other words, from African language to other African languages. Yeah. And that's when they asked me 
through my son Mukoma for a story, write them a story in Koyo so they can start the process. I not write one, but I had one already written that was in my shelf. And I'm telling you, I mean, it's, it's just, it's amazing what they have done with it. I hope you mentioned the, the link in your talk. It's still available in the internet. Uh, if you look up at Galada translation one, you'll find the story there. Now, translated into, I think, slightly more than 100 languages in the world, and most of them are African. So these are very incredible, successful, inter-African, African translation, but also translation to other languages as well. Yeah. So the story is available in Hindi, in Russian, in German, in I don't know, I mean, in virtually over 50 African languages. And it's available in the internet. And what is beautiful about it, you can see the story in the original form, then you can see it in English and different African languages, but with their scripts as well, right? Mm. So very beautiful. And it's a very beautiful object too. The art that comes when you get the book itself is really stunning. It has been published as a book in Sweden. Swedish translation is part of a book there. Uh, in Chile as well. My publisher in Calcutta has also produced that's a very beautiful edition. It's really great. Uh, yeah, upright yeah. revolution, yeah. So what I'm trying to say, and I'm glad you mentioned that because it can be done. Yeah? It can yes. be done. <laughs> it has been done, right? Yeah, we just need to normalize it, right? Yeah. Yes. yeah. Well, can you talk about why you want to be your own translator versus someone else? Why, why is it important to you to do the work of translation? And then also, what is your translation philosophy. I know when you first started, you wanted to make the reader aware of the source language and its rhythms, but that's less so now. So talk to us about your life as a translator into English, the why of it, and then also the how of it. I translate myself as a necessity, meaning that I don't have anybody at the time who could or wanted or who had the energy or the commitment to turn any of my books into uh, English as you know as quickly as I'd have liked, except one, Matigari, which was tran translated into English by one Goi Wagoro. My initial impulse was I wanted to crush that argument, which was there at the time. That if you write in an African language, it will not somehow not be available. Or you are, if you ever write Koyo, I am making myself unavailable to other African who don't speak Koyo. So I wanted to crush that argument. So it's important for me that my novel be also be available in English, which I could do it myself. I could have them translated into English by doing it myself. 
because I was keen to fight against that other argument that the book is not available. And that's why I did it. It's hard work traveling to your own work because it's like doing the same work twice. The first time is exciting because it's like exploration. The second time is like, oh my God. <laughs> there is, for me, there's no excitement in translating one's own work, right? So translation, there's, I know, honestly, there's no excitement for me. Yeah. But a time will come when there'll be many good translators from Gekko into English or into French or into Igbo, into Yoruba, into Somalia, into Zulu or Swahili and all that. And that should change everything, yeah. But we have one problem. I might as well mention it here. The educational policies in Africa are so anti-African, you'll believe it. Uh, exceptions are places like Tanzania, uh, but generally almost the entire continent is dominated by anti-African language programs. Things are changing slowly, but it's dreadful the way African government will not put one penny into promoting African languages but to put a lot of dollars into promotion of English or French or Portuguese. Yeah. But this will change. But that's one of the biggest handicaps we have right now in the continent. And it's what they call normalized abnormality uh, in the education policies in the continent. And as I mentioned earlier, even today, uh, they continue punishing African kids for speaking an African language in the school compound. Even today, today as we talk, I know it's true in the case of Kenya. In your book, Global Lectics, Theory and the Politics of Knowing, you call this linguistic feudalism. And you, you contrast linguistic feudalism with a notion called the globalectic approach. And I was wondering if you could tell us what globalectics is and is it related to dialectics? It is, obviously, but I was theorizing my practice in uh, at the University of California, Irvine. I came to California from New York University. I came here to be the founding director of the International Center for Writing and Translation. And the reason I came here is because I was very excited at the prospects of being a center that is promoting this dialogue or whatever it is among languages, right? Or even theorizing about it. So I was the founding director of the center. But when I came, I was thinking, where would we start? In Nairobi, in the early 60s, we had written a document called on the abolition of the English department. This because we wanted to be African literature be at the center of our studies. Of course, then we got just say African literature in African language, you just said African literature. 
Tibia Center, followed by Caribbean, African American, Latin American, Asian, and then European, like cycles of Africa, then Caribbean, African American, then Latin American, you know, Asia, then European, that kind of way, yeah. But with Africa at the center. So when I came to Irvine in the year 2002, I believe, I asked myself the same question. If what my argument about the center when I'm in Kenya is Kenya, so what is my center here in Irvine, okay, where languages are concerned? And it's very obvious that Native American language were the center, right? right? Or should be the center. So our first event here was actually the impact of Native American languages on American culture when it brought together Native American writers, uh, including my friend Haunani, the late Haunani from Hawaii. It was a very successful thing. So we developed the notion of from here to there, and then here. Here to there, there to here. Here to there, and then here. The notion of knowledge begins where you are. Knowledge begins with your body. Then you see how it's connected to the road around you, to the environment, to the air around you, to the water around you, to whatever. And then you go on adding. I mean, the problem of knowing is also adding to what one already knows, has the idea that from whichever center you are at, you can connect with the world, with the globe, in a dialectical process of give and take, hence globalectics. And this is because at the center, we're able to start with Native American languages, then we're able to bring in even Asian languages into conversation. So from the center, we literally are able to have a kind of global <laughs> conversation among languages, yeah. right? Yeah. So hence, we call it from here to there, there to here, from here to there, there to here. From where you are, you connect. It's a part of give and take. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I love that. That's what we call global ethics. And I was able to put it into a book called Global Ethics. And in that book, when you talk about the global ethic worldview as like an archipelago of treasures, and, and you've talked in the language of languages about languages, as you've done here, being like a symphony, but also languages as bridges, because no bridge goes one direction. And finally, in the Global Ethics book, you talk about viewing the relationship between languages rhizomatically. And you say that what is central to viewing things rhizomatically is translation. And that by viewing things rhizomatically, we can collapse the hierarchy. And I wanted to spend a moment about collapsing the hierarchy, not just linguistically, but politically to imagine a post-colonial situation that's not built on American and European memory. Um, and I wondered, as, just as a beginning to this question, I wondered if you saw the movie last year, Neptune Frost. 
No. So the movie is made by a black American filmmaker and musician, Saul Williams, and a Rwandan writer and actor, Anisia Uziman. And, and the title, Neptune Frost, it comes from the name of a slave from one of the original American colonies who fought in the Revolutionary War. But the movie is set in Burundi. Okay. And it's filmed in Rwanda. And like the play that got you imprisoned, it is told in, in many African languages uh, with an African cast of mostly artists and musicians from Burundi and Rwanda. Some of them themselves are actually refugees from Burundi who now live in Rwanda. And it's an Afro-futurist or African-futurist musical that's set in the coltan mines of Rwanda. And coltan is the metal that's used to make the capacitors in our cell phones and our cameras and our personal computers. And 50% of the world's supply of coltan comes from Rwanda. You could think or you could imagine that this movie would be the most hopeless and despairing film given the conditions of the Africans forced by wage slavery to work in these mines. But this movie is very life-giving, remarkably life-giving. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it begins with both their own conditions and their own bodies, their own subjectivities and their own languages, mm. alongside the ways the resources of Africa are being stolen from them yeah. to be used to be used by everybody else. And it reminded me of several things about your writing. For one, your notion of what you call poor theory, the idea of maximizing the possibilities inherent in the minimum. Because these people who we most want to ignore and we pretend don't exist or that they don't even deserve rights or maybe perhaps they're not even human, they're finding power in connection between themselves. They're refusing the white gaze and they're refusing white memory. Mm. But I also think about how it's set in a coltan mine, how you've talked about how Africa as a continent is bigger than North America, Europe, China, and India put together, that it has so many resources. And yet it seems to me that in contrast to other resource-rich areas, let's say like Saudi Arabia, which has wealth and leverage, political leverage, that the more Africa makes its resources available, the poorer it seems to become. And, and you've linked language and resources explicitly. You say, quote, securing African languages should be part of a whole vision of Africans securing our resources. The moment we lost our languages was also the moment we lost our bodies our gold, diamonds, copper, coffee, tea. The moment we accepted or made to accept that we could not do things with our languages was the moment we accepted that we could not make things with our vast resources. Talk to us for a minute about, about this relationship, how 
replanting African memory with language and overthrowing an extractive colonial capitalism are connected to each other. The way I put it, actually, accents and access. Accent, you know, accent, like English accent, or like I speak with a co-accent. Yes. Okay? And access, when I'm accessing you, I'm accessing. Accents, access. So there was, I put it, Europe, through colonial system, and event after, gave Africa the resources of their accents so that some of the best English spoken in Africa, some of the best French. <laughs> not, not me, my co-accent always intervened. But I'm just saying, Europe gave Africa the resources of their accents. Africa gave Europe the resources of the continent, right? So for their accents, uh, we give them access. <laughs> so accents, they gave us in exchange access to the continent, right? Yeah. And I saw that as really still the problem of the African continent, the mental thing that almost cannot make us see these possibilities within the continent. It's almost blind to what we can do within the continent. And it's a, it's a big problem, yeah. So I summarize the problem of the continent as one of accents and access. Yeah, they give us accents, but in exchange, we give access to the gold, to the copper, to the diamonds, to uranium, to, uh, you call it cotton, cotton, or whatever you call it. All those things are found in the continent, right? But we're so obsessed with perfection of the accents that we we don't see that we have given access to the others, no matter how they are speaking their language, you know. A good example of this is, and I, I know it in Kenya, and sometimes sometimes surprises, not surprising, but it becomes sad. Say, we have very important days in Kenya. The day we got our independence, or rather we, we regained our independence, you know, it's important. It depends on Kenya was gotten through struggle, armed struggle, by the Kenya Land and Freedom Army, otherwise known as Mau Mau. And Kenyan history is very interesting because Kenyan people were the first, if I, believe, I may be wrong, but I think they were the first, to break the trend which was there before. Let me explain what it was. In America, America was, a, of course, owned by Native Americans, but it became a white settler, a white settler colony, English colony, okay? What they call American independence was not the independence of 
the colonized, the, the colonized remained colonized. The people who said we are now independent were the colonizers, right? Who said we are independent from our home base, but you are still colonial in relation to Native American, okay? And this country became America. We saw the same trend, Canada. In every settler colony in Canada, the same. In New Zealand, the same. Australia, the same. In Africa, it was beginning to be the same with South Africa, 1912. So white community, somehow becoming dependent South Africa or something like that. The first settler colony to successfully fight that trend to break that chain was Kenya, right? When in 1952, there came about the Kenya, uh, it's called Kenya Land and Freedom Army, started the war against the British presence in Kenya. It was the first, it's not a technology all over the world, but it's the first settler colony to reverse that trend, which would be normal for America, for Canada, for Australia, for New Zealand, so that, and then Kenya says no. Okay. Kenya then was followed by Zimbabwe, of course, and then later South Africa, and so on. So I'm very proud of <laughs> I'm, I'm very proud of my country, Kenya. Now, at independence, you'd think when we celebrate that history of Kenya, and you're addressing your leader of the country, and you want to, you you want to talk to you're talking to Kenyan people, right? But every leader would speak on that major day. He addressed a nation in English. When we go, we go to Kiswahili, can reach more Kenyans than English. And most of the African leaders in Kenya can speak Kiswahili very fluently. But automatically, it's almost like they are primed. So when they get on the stage to speak to the nation, they are not asking to the nation, they are speaking to Americans and uh, <laughs> they are speaking to an English speaking elite. Yes. Yeah. And it's so automatic. So it baffles me. So that's, yeah. oh, what's happening? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Normalized abnormality. You are speaking to the nation about their pride, their history. You are celebrating what they have done. Only speaking to them in the language most widely spoken in the country. In this, we are very lucky because we go to Kiswahili. Kiswahili is an African language, but it's also the national African language in Tanzania. But spoken in East Africa and the Congo. Why not speak to them about their history in Swahili, at the very least? So it's those kind of things that tell you there about this conditioning I've been talking about, okay? Language bring about this conditioning, predisposition to not see the rest of the continent, to not see, to not see the continent. We don't see it. We are from the continent, but we don't see our continent, right? Yeah. Well, I wanted to end with 
talking about decolonization here in the United States where we both live. You, you gave a talk as part of the Yale Council on African Studies called Decolonizing the American University, where you talk about your campaign in the 60s to get Nairobi University to change the English department to the Department of Literature. You also changed your own name from your given name, James Googie, to Googie Watiango. Original name, Googie Watiango, yeah. Yeah. And you emphasize that it's important for us, it's as important for us to decolonize spaces here in the West. And you've talked in many places about Prospero and Caliban, as well as Robinson Crusoe and Friday, how Caliban originally knows more about the environment than Prospero, much more, just as the indigenous Caribbean people know more than Columbus. But all the knowledge gets encoded into a colonial language. The original is lost and discarded, and the recording by Prospero or Columbus becomes the de facto original. And that modern scholarship works on this native informant model. I think about what you said earlier today in the conversation about, as the head of the International Center for Writing and Translation in Irvine, that you didn't start with East African writers and scholars, as you would have done if you had headed this department in Africa. You started by inviting Native American and Hawaiian writers and scholars. And I wondered if this is where we should start in North America with English departments, not only changing their names, to departments of literature, but by including, if we're thinking of your globalectic model, on equal footing to English-descended literatures, Native American literatures, and African American literatures. Yes. This would be the base of the founding of American identity, not, not the colonizer identity as American identity. No, that's still the colonizer, right? That's the abnormality I've been talking about. In the case of Canada, USA, South America, uh, Australia, New Zealand, is what they call normalized abnormality. Abnormality is that the colonized never went through the colonization here. And that's a fact. I'm not making this up. So the people who said this is our independence were the colonizers. They only disconnected themselves from Europe but they were still the same Europeans who colonized. So it would really change everything, in a, even in terms of a different personality, if America dug, or both, by America I mean both um, North and South, you know, um, into the rich heritage they have, which is Native American, at that that of African American, because African American were forced to create something new, right? What I call torn and new, something torn. It's actually it's Kamal Brotherwhite who says something torn and yet new, right? This would be, for me, if I was being asked my advice, I would say this would be the founding cultures of America, but not the European one, not the colonizing model. Yeah. In other words, like we have in Native American, African American, European, because depending on how they relate to each other, that's fine. 
But it doesn't matter what is at the center and what's at the periphery, right? Yeah. And Canada, uh, America as a whole, both North and South, uh, New Australia, are all founded on normalized abnormality because the people, the original people who were colonized never went through decolonization. The people who took the flag were the colonizers who said, now we are independent. That normalized abnormality is so common, even in other forms, like in Africa continuing uh, in the elite, continue the European languages as the way of talking to the nation. And I've said, there's nothing wrong with the European languages, but there's something wrong in how they relate or they are made to relate to African languages. I'm very passionate about this. This world, which is abnormal abnormality, is like having a wound and we don't want to go see its origins and all that. But how do you, you be a surgeon, how do you do this and you don't want to see what is behind the illness? You say it's normal. Oh, no, no, it's normal, you know. It's normal for me to come and colonize you, take your land, take your language, take your, and then say, oh, we're now independent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Abnormality, I mean, the abnormality of the colonial system now normalized as, as a desirable norm, right? Everywhere. We are proud of it. Huh? We are independent, American flag. Okay. <laughs> But what, what about the native? What about the native? I mean, the one who actually colonized mm -hmm. the land taken away, the land. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. Mm. But unfortunately, this is what I'm trying to say. It's not just an American thing. It's all over the world. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Normalized abnormality of both the colonial capitalist system. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Googie, for today. Yeah. You know more about me and my work than I do myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah. We've been talking today to Gugi Watiango about his latest book from Siegel Books, The Language of Languages, Reflections on Translation. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. A hearty thank you to Seagull Books for creating a Googie Watiango book bundle and an Alen Siksu book bundle for two new supporters. Check out Seagull Books at seagullbooks.org. The Seagull Book Bundle's are only one of many possible benefits of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. The bonus audio archive, which includes many long-form interviews with translators, readings by everyone from Dion Brand to Nikki Finney to Sharif Shanahan, to rare collectibles by past guests, to copies of the Arab-American journal Mizna, their Southwest Asia, North Africa Black Takeover issue, to the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. 
to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. In addition, every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests and getting the supplementary resources with every conversation. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jane Michelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshop. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. 